Hello, and welcome to the Foot School Podcast. I'm Joe Charles. Fifth grade is an exciting year at Foot and a time of transition for children. At a parent meeting on February 13th, head of lower school, Chrissy Katchney, discussed the ERB tests and math placement for sixth grade, while Foot's consulting pediatric psychiatrist, Dr. Michael Kaplan, talked about the joys and challenges of adolescence. Welcome. I'm so excited to see um, such a good group here today. It's one of those talks that has a couple of different parts to it, which on the surface might not seem so connected, but when we get down to it, it is very much connected, this idea of starting assessments and budding pre-adolescence. And so I want to start with sharing a few tidbits about our ERB uh, assessment and some of the information about what we're doing with the results. And also touch upon quickly some information about math placement for next year. And then I'm going to hand things over to Dr. Michael Kaplan, who's here, to help us talk a little bit more about our developing joys and challenges. I think you had a few extra uh, more intriguing titles. (laughs) Um, That's a good one. That's a good way to start. I know I've had the opportunity to sit with a number of you who are here to talk about ERB so far, and some of what I intend on sharing is quite similar in the broad sense. Um, For those of you who do have individual questions, I'm more than happy to connect with you afterwards. Um, It's interestingly enough, a few people have been like, oh my goodness, you're meeting with everybody who wants to come and see grades. Um, I actually find it to be one of the more exciting times of the year, one, because like the kids, I don't often get to see you all one-on-one. It's most often in group settings. So it's nice to connect and hear about your experiences and how fifth grade is going for you. I've joked, and I promise it's only half serious, that I'm working with Mr. Turner on keeping this grade next year and absorbing sixth grade into lower school um, because it is such a wonderful group. And for me, (coughs) it's such a short window of time in their journey that I'm going to get to connect and spend time with them. The Educational Record Bureau is sort of the big umbrella company that produces the comprehensive testing program, the CTP test that we administer. This year is new in the sense that they came out with the CTP-5. And what that means for our students is that historically, schools have had the option to administer paper versus digital. And now the students are all taking the assessment on their Chromebooks which for all of us who took standardized testing many, many moons ago um, (coughs) presents some interesting sort of challenges in the sense of learning to take an assessment in a digital format versus being able to see your questions, kind of look ahead and plan. This is and always has been very much a first time experience for our students. It's not something that we look at the results and we sort of put a tremendous amount of weight on in terms of student performance, but it's a starting point in their sort of more traditional standardized test journey. Um, And I remind all of you to keep that in the forefront of your mind as you look at your student scores, if you choose to. Um, And also know that it's a building experience. It's something that's going to help them over the next few years in middle school as they become more familiar with taking this type of assessment. With each year, they'll be provided the opportunity. Um, And the other piece is that, as you know, here at Foot, we don't do a whole lot of standardized testing. A lot of our questions, our assessments, afford students the opportunity to really demonstrate their knowledge 
through explanation, through talking about process. Process is a big part of our learning experience here. And so again, that just further highlights this idea of, is this a starting point? It's a necessary evil. Standardized testing is still a component of how individuals are expected to express or demonstrate their knowledge going forward. And so we want to make sure that we do prepare our students for that, but that it's not the crux of what we do, especially in lower school. It's all yours. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Chrissy. So we have um, some time this morning to talk, and thank you. Were there any questions for that? Uh, I, I know you may want to rush right on, but any questions for Christy before we go? Okay, so what I want to do is give, like, this is that, that's the play-by-play, -play, and this is the color commentary about mm -hmm. fifth graders. Um, and um, I know it, I'm thinking about the bookends, because we've been doing this for quite a while, right? Because there's a kindergarten talk that I give, and then a fifth grade talk, and off you go to middle school. So it's kind of like bookends the whole experience. And so what I want to do this morning is talk about what to expect of, of your fifth grader. Um, there are a lot of caveats always uh, when I give a talk like this. Um, first of all, I can give the impression, talks like this can give the impression there's like one way to do it. There are many ways to do it. There's no such thing as a perfect parent. Um, uh, that we shouldn't have an ideal of a perfect parent. In fact, imperfection is who we are. We're constantly making mistakes and that's very important for our children. Um, because we're not just role models in what we do well, we're also role models in what we don't do well. Um, and so they can watch us fail, point it out to us. That's one of the things that fifth graders love to start doing. <laughs> um, um, but our goal is not to be perfect. Our goal is to be who we are, ourselves, And that has lots of flaws, lots of strengths, lots of advantages, lots of things that our children should look up to us for. But you know, m mistakes are good and that uh, uh, humanizes us. Um, the other thing that can be challenging in a talk like this is it avoids the bell-shaped curve of childhood. So I might be talking about well, fifth graders are typically X, you know, but you may feel like, well, my child is more Y. And so there's a large, just like within those two groupings of math, there's a large variation. Um, and so some, some um, and you know your children well, they'll track along sort of one path, some along another. So some of these comments may uh, apply uh, very much. You might resonate a lot, and some of it might not. It doesn't mean your child, there's something wrong with your child. Um, it just means that we were going to talk about generalities. Um, and then what I want to do at the end is to uh, have time for, for questions because I think that's often the most valuable part of these kinds of discussions. Um, because sort of in the end, sort of I want to start with, is where are we trying to go to, right? We're trying to go as parents to get our children to be independent, right? We want them to be separate from us. Um, they may do that kicking and screaming um, or they may do it like way too early. But the idea is for them to become, what, what are some of the things that I think about that were our goals long term? And we really, that starts in infancy and you know, goes through early childhood and into middle school, at, you know, at high school and young adulthood. You know, we want them to be resilient children, right? And that's part of our job is to help them to be resilient and, and overcome adversity, right? So we'll get to that in a little while. It's okay for them to be disappointed, to be unhappy. It's okay for them to be sad. It's okay for the day not to go well or things not to work out. Um, and that part of life is sort of how to overcome. Our job is not to sort of whitewash all of that away and to sort of mow it all down, um, but help them. Uh, and part of that is managing their stress, managing um, self-control, and regulating their emotional states. Um, all of that kind of fits together. Uh, the other two things that I like to think about is um, we want them to be able to have empathic relationships. We want them to be caring, thoughtful, um, giving people. Um, and um, and then in order to do that, they have to have a real sound identity. So. So what, what, we're, what we're about you know, here is sort of getting them, getting them to that point. Um, the other title I had for this talk was, Mom, You Just Don't Understand. <laughs> um, fill in dad, fill in grandma, fill in whoever. You know? So they start to get the sense of, 
you know, I talk about self-advocacy and identity, part of it comes at great cost to us. <laughs> you know, in some ways it was easier uh, when they were, they were younger. Um, I also see parenting as an exercise in anxiety management, ours as well as theirs. Um, we have a lot of pressure on us. I'll start with the parent side. Um, so there are all kinds of messages from everywhere um, in, in some ways in which the internet has made things difficult as you can just Google anything, right? We know that and I think there's an advantage of knowledge but it can also make us more anxious. Uh, sometimes ignorance is bliss and we didn't know how everyone else was doing things and didn't have all this advice. It was just you had to go to a book and read about it. Um, and there's this, I think, a sense as our communities have become and families have become more dispersed and people are you know, living far away from extended families, uh, we have less of our own family to look at and think about. Um, I think we look to other models and sometimes that can increase our anxiety about, oh, this family is doing it better, that family. They have it all figured. The idea of everyone having it figured out, they haven't. They have no one, no one, no one uh, even myself, um, no one has it all uh, figured out at all. So we have to think about paying attention to our anxiety as parents. Where is it coming from? What do we do about it? Uh, we hopefully we'll get to that kind of later in the talk. Um, but also, what about their anxiety, right? That there are kids, um, you know, one thing that we all, but that we do know is that anxiety is on the rise in children. Um, we're starting to see it in lower school kids, certainly middle school. Um, you know, I work with a lot of high school kids and college students, um, and uh, the, the, the results are, are not encouraging. But so it's on us to think about how do we help our children with their anxiety. And each developmental stage comes with this new set of challenges. So what they may have been anxious about in preschool is different from what they were anxious about as third graders and what they'll be anxious about uh, in middle school, and we'll talk about it as well. Another kind of concept besides managing anxiety is managing autonomy. Um, so life is also a lifelong sort of balance between wanting to be independent and wanting to be dependent. Um, again, each age has its own way of manifesting that, um, and it's an exchange between those two you know, concepts. So our you know, fifth or sixth grader may all of a sudden want to be doing all these things on their own, and seeming like, oh my goodness, they're acting like a 22-year-old. Um, and the other hand, they may want to crawl into our lap and suck their thumb. Um, and so we have to be prepared for those kinds of things. And both are totally normal. And that's part of what's going on with your fifth grader is that part of them very much wants to be a big kid, but part of them still wants to be, you know, like that, you know, sucking their thumb in bed with you and cuddling. Um, and, uh, and, and we don't know when that's going to happen. Um, and it becomes more extreme as adolescents, but they're starting that process of separating from us, um, just like they did when they were toddlers, but it's happening in a different form. And so we have to know when to do what, and it can be uh, very confusing. You know, our dilemma is to figure out uh, which is happening at which time, um, but the idea is always being present for them. So what's going on um, uh, for them? So the, the first thing that's going on is has to do with their bodies, right? Their bodies are changing. Um, some of them, again, the, you know, what I always think of is when you go into a, you know, a lower school or elementary school, the kids sort of all look the same. There's like a hom homogeneity, like in size and shape, up, up, there's difference. And all of a sudden, you go into middle school and there's like, oh my goodness, it's like, it's so different. Like some, you know, kids look super old and some kids look like they're in second grade. And you can have two friends and one is down here and one is up here. Um, and so, uh, uh, so that, that those things start to sprout. Uh, and some kids are on the faster end and some kids are on the slower end. Uh, and they're all over the map. Um, and so there's lots of awkwardness and embarrassment. I think we can all remember back to that phase uh, uh, of our own lives when you didn't want to look in the mirror for a period of time. Each day it might be a different person uh, looking back at you. Um, you know, when acne starts to come and pimples, so that pimple seems as big as a nose. Um, and so, um, so their bodies are changing and they're having to develop, like growing pains is a real, both not psychological, but physical. Um, their bodies are actively changing and some kids may shoot up five or six inches in a year. 
Um, and that comes at, at some cost to them. The kids, some kids are very focused on it, mm -hmm. and some kids are very oblivious. That's another thing to know about middle school kids, um, is that um, you know, some seem hyper-aware, and some seem like they have no clue what's going on uh, around them. You know, some are very interested in having a girlfriend, and some don't even know there's, like, there's different genders and different sexes. You know, it's, it's so you can, again, be, be, they're all over the map. The other thing has to do with friendships, right? They start to focus outside the family, and their peers become more important or uh, develop greater importance than, say, the family did. So whereas all of their messages, all of the ways in which they think and act and dress come more from the home, you know, all of a sudden they want to um, look like everyone else. And so their clothing choices, their hairstyles, the music they listen to, kind of what they want to eat, sort of all those kinds of things might be rapidly uh, changing. And that's a big source of anxiety, uh, our friendships. Um, and how do they manage that? And this is where you start to see groupings, cliques, you know, kinds of the things that um, we dread but are kind of part of what happens in, 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 in middle school. That to manage the anxiety of feeling so different, we'll talk about the observations that they make, they do things to make themselves feel safe and secure. Because again, just like infants need to feel secure, elementary school, you know, lower school kids need, security is kind of the name of the game. Um, they also start to discriminate much more so within their grouping. So who's, you know, the smartest? Who's the best at math? Who has more facts about this? Who's the tallest? Who's the best soccer player? Who's the best football? You know, who's the best, whatever it might be, the best musician? They, they start to compare a lot. You know, so some comparison, which wasn't such a big thing, you know, when they were younger, Start, and they all start to know who that person is. And that's where popularity starts to come in, right? Because it wasn't so much who's popular in second grade. That's not a concept really for them because they can't make those distinctions. Um, and they're not thinking about it in that way. What they're thinking about in middle school is how am I, who am I, and how do I stack up against other people? Uh, we'll get to comparisons later because that can be, you know, again, be a source of stress uh, uh, for children. And with that becomes, you know, those sort of concerns about do I have the right sneakers? Do I have the right haircut? Again, do I have the right clothing? Do I, is everyone wearing, you know, whatever the latest thing is? Um, uh, do I have the latest piece of technology, you know, that's just come out? Do I have AirPods? Do I have the latest AirPods? Do I have the noise can? You know, so, so those kinds of, <laughs> and it's like a life or death thing if they don't, right? So for them, if I don't have that thing, like life is over. Um, and, uh, and so it can be confusing to us and frustrating and exasperating because we all know if they don't have that next, you know, set of whatever you know, sneakers that have come out, um, that, uh, that they actually will be okay. Like life will go on if they don't have <laughs> X or Y. But for them, the way in which they're, and we'll talk about brain wiring too, it, it, it's as if that's actually how they feel. Um, they, the, the way they're wired is, is, is that those distinctions and those recriminations are very important and they don't have the emotional bandwidth to try and manage it, and that's kind of our, our job. Um, so if I have to think about four things, uh, you know, four ways to think about this age group, uh, what are the sort of conceptual framework that I use to think about middle school kids? So one is moodiness, um, we'll talk about that. The other is this focus outside the family, um, increasing independence and changes to their body both inside and outside. Um, and so, uh, and the big question becomes, where do I fit in and how do I fit in? Um, and they become very sensitive to any ways in which they stand out. So again, that idea, I want to conf conformity becomes much more important. Again, how I'm looking, how I'm acting. Again, there's some kids who are very oblivious, who have no clue what's going on around them. And sometimes a parent in this talk will raise their hand and say, but my son doesn't even seem to know, like, you know, anything. And that's also completely normal. Um, and so, um, so, you know, uh, you know s some wise middle school person who I uh, respect once said to me that middle school is a contest, is all about a contest that they can't win, right? And they're always 
you know, they're becoming more competitive and they're becoming more aware and they really can't win. And again, that's normal. This is that daily frustration, uh, that daily kind of comparison, that daily kind of feeling like someone else has more than I do is completely uh, normal. Um, however, I don't want to, the other risk of this kind of talk is that like, oh my God, teenagers are terrible, you know? And so it's, to me, that's, <laughs> that's very facile. And I think it's lazy of us to always say that. Um, and we have to catch ourselves. So if one piece of advice, catch ourselves and we're like, oh my God, she, you, know, you can say that to your partner, spouse, or whoever, you know, from one to say, we need to say that. But there's so much joy and there's so much else that's going on. So I want to also bookmark that there's so part of these things actually, obviously, when you, someone like myself comes, you want to hear about how do we handle the bad stuff. But I also want to not lose sight of you know, all the good stuff that's, that's going on. Because by fifth grade, they're starting to develop a unique sense of who they are. So just as they're comparing themselves, they're also saying, who am I and what do I stand for? Uh, and, and how do I feel about myself? What kind of interests, what kind of passions, what kinds of things do I like and what am I going to explore? They also have increased analytic abilities, um, so they can figure things out more. They become much more interesting conversationalists, and if they'll talk to you in the car, um, <laughs> if, um, and if they'll talk to you at dinner, they have more interesting things to say. Like the one thing I found, I'm on the other end now, uh, you know, I don't even have a teenager anymore, so it makes me feel old to talk to fifth grade parents, but each phase does get better. If, you know, um, it does get more interesting, and they become, you know, um, they have, you know, their brains are really developing, uh, and the teachers see this in action. So the curriculum, as you were talking about the curriculum change, the curriculum really matches sort of the things that are happening. So their analytic abilities are improving, and where does this come from? So, so what do we know about brain development? So um, we know that the first five or six years are spent with a rapid proliferation of connections being made. So sort of genetically coded, you know, we, we are born with mostly a full complement of neurons in our brain. Uh, and the first five or six years is just a, just a massive um, uh, sort of connection parade uh, of, because of, uh, the, the neurons don't, they don't know who they need to connect with or why or when. But based on experience, the brain starts to shape and mold. And experiences and things that happen that are reinforced, those, um, those connections are, are, are wired together and those that are, are not reinforced sort of fade away. And so the brain, uh, what happens inside the brain is what's called pruning. And so the brain over the first five to six years becomes much more efficient. By middle school, um, it becomes much more hardwired. And so, uh, so kids are able to do much more, think much more, and their abilities to process information become much more efficient. Um, and so what we find in the brain is that the, 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 if, if you remember, you have a nerve cell and an axon. The axon is what connects and sends the messages from one nerve cell to the next. Initially, the axons aren't, they're kind of, um, like very inefficient. They get myelinated over the course of lower school, and by the time they get to be fifth and sixth graders, um, the, the children are able to exploit their environment much more. You know, one way I like to think about young children is that they're explorers of their environment. So like you think about the kindergarten who takes a half an hour to walk to the classroom, as I probably mentioned to you in the kindergarten talk, because each twig and stick and you know, leaf is so interesting. But you know, by fifth grade, they're like, they're, I'm, I'm going to go see my friends, right? Like they get to school and they walk up that path, and, and they don't really even need you to walk up that path. Um, and so, um, those, so the brain becomes more fast, and it increases their abstract thinkings. And that, that's a great advance to them, and it sets them up for taking something. Like we wouldn't give the ERBs to a kindergartner because they couldn't sit long enough, right? Or they get too distracted. Um, but again, the yin and yang of all this is that more efficient brain, you become more aware of those differences. So the idea of what's happening on the outside, comparing, thinking about what other kids have that you don't have, am I taller, am I smarter, am I stronger, am I more handsome or prettier, all come because the brain now is able to make those kinds of more uh, discrete 
um, observations about their lives. Um, um, and so um, combined with the surge in emotionality, you know, it's a setup for them having more, more difficulties. And the problem on our end is that as they, again, that other concept of focus not on the family, when they used to come home to us to talk, they may not be looking to us for that kind of, uh, that help. Um, and so they may be looking to others to support their self-esteem. So when they were in first grade or second grade and they did something beautiful in art and you put it up on the refrigerator and you said you're a beautiful artist and you're so smart and this is a great piece of, you know, uh, now they'll start to say things like, you just said that because you're my dad. You know, they're less believing in our ways of trying to promote their self-esteem and it shifts, to, shifts more to their, their social groups. Um, so, um, uh, and because of that, they start to look at authority in new ways, right? So um, anyone experienced the eye roll yet? I think the eye roll, <laughs> just like other things, the eye roll is getting younger and younger. Um, <laughs> but but I'll, I'll stick with fifth graders. Um, you know, they can start to see our flaws um, more than they were in the past. Um, and so, um, so, and one way of managing their shaky identity is to point out our flaws, right? So instead of focusing on what's going on with them and the difficulties they may be encountering, it's much easier to point out, um, and, and life becomes a <laughs> series of, uh, uh, of, of you, you being an eternal disappointment to your children um, because they can always see you know, what's not going well. Uh, it can affect our shaky brain uh, as well. Other things that are happening to fifth graders are um, they're starting to become, you know, other discriminations that are being made around, sort of more around gender um, as puberty comes. Um, uh, you know, um, changes occur in the body um, and some are happening earlier, some are happening, happening later. Um, what I like to think about gender um, <clears throat> is that we're more alike than different. You know, the boys and girls are more alike and we tend to focus on differences. Uh, and I think another thing that's sort of helped us is thinking about what is gender anyway, you know, you know, what is male, what is female, masculine, feminine, transgender. So I think actually our children are growing up in a much better world than we did. And I, um, you know, um, when I think about it, I think I'm learning more from them <laughs> about it than, um, than, than what I grew up with. Um, and they're constantly helping us think about that. Um, but in terms of the way in which they're similar, you know, I think um, whichever gender your child is, they're still thinking about power and dominance. Um, they're still thinking about their bodies. Uh, they're still thinking about um, what they're doing to get attention, um, and that, um, and also sort of thinking about their sexuality. Um, some are ahead of the curve, <laughs> and some are behind the curve. Sometimes at some classes, um, uh, start to get into, I'll put air quotes on, this, on dating. Um, they're not dating. Um, and what I encourage you to, <laughs> they're, they're really not dating. Um, they may think they're dating, so what I encourage you to do um, is to ask them if they talk about so-and-so is dating. Like you may get a report, you know, so-and-so is a boyfriend and girlfriend, like in you know, sixth grade or seventh grade. Sometimes, it, has it happened in this grade? Hopefully not. I'm out of the loop. Oh, you're out of the loop. I'm okay. out of the loop. <laughs> There's always like one or two. Um, but I would ask them, <laughs> what do you mean bit. by that? There's a little bit. You know, you know, and as they go to sixth and seventh and eighth grade, these sort of things, obviously they become more aware of themselves as sexual beings and um, they become more interested in that aspect of their lives and finding attractions to other students. Um, and uh, and so, so rather than assume that they're, you're just sort of like if they come home and say something that you don't know, don't take it at face value. Um, anything having to do with, with sex or relationships, you want to say, well, what do you mean by that? That's kind of like the best thing, you know, kind of advice, general advice I could give you is when you, you think they know something, um, they probably don't. Um, and so I would encourage you to um, ask about it. The other thing that I find that's very influential in, in both for boys and girls is the role of media. 
uh, on their sense of their growing and developing body. So you have this terrible storm of their bodies changing dramatically, um, and all these messages coming in about how they're supposed to feel and think and look about their body. Um, and I think it's really important for us to have those conversations with them. You know, it, you know I'm, I'm so fat, or I'm so skinny, or I'm so tall, and, and say, what do you mean by that? And what are you thinking? And let's think about all the kinds of bodies. Like, even if we looked around this whole room right now, there's all kinds of body shapes. Um, and so I think the thing to help our children, um, and this is a really tough area, um, boys as well as girls, and we used to think it was much more about girls, um, but boys also have a sense of, you know, when I, when I give a lecture on this to, to undergraduates and we talk about gender and play, you know, I show uh, like a G.I. Joe from the 60s and a G.I. Joe for now or Star Wars characters like Luke Skywalker, like in 1977 when he came out, is sort of like just like got a dad bod. Um, and I swear to God, I don't know, I should bring that slide next time. Uh, Luke Skywalker now is like, like pumped up and ripped and, you know, he's just like, He's got like more abs than you know a washboard, and so so boys as well as girls get these messages um, from the media, and I think it's important to think about with them when these conversations come up, um, which also gets to technology um, and thinking about media, and we don't really have you know enough time to talk about that. It's okay to limit technology. If I had to boil down to one thing, it's okay to limit what they're watching, screen time. You know, we know that people need people. Like we're an affiliative species. We need to be around people and talking to people. Um, and that's where I think all of you can help each other. I don't think there's a single parent who isn't pulling their hair out and saying, what do I do about this? What do I do about this? Um, and I think it's important to set those limits. Um, if you want to say no screen time during the week, you have my support. Um, and I don't think, you know, other than sort of obviously there's some essential things and, you know, but sort of no video games. They don't need to play video games during the week. Um, there's plenty of other things for them to do. Um, um, and, um, and the one thing that we, we do know in terms of long-term um, success in terms of family are family dinners. So when I think about media and kids, I think about when you can block media in the home. The two times are meal times and bedtime. Also, no child needs a tablet or a phone in their bedroom. None of them. You know, it's even arguable up through, up, uh, through foot school, we'll say, come back to me in high school. But no one needs a phone in their room. If they need an alarm clock, get them an alarm clock. <laughs> um, and they don't need, you know, so many kids now, we know, are sleeping with under their pillow. Um, and so we'll get to sort of healthy behaviors. Um, but I want to encourage you all to think about, like, mealtime. So we do know that, actually, if there's one family factor that is the best prediction for school performance, relationships, um, you know, in a delaying sex till after high school, less use of drugs and alcohol, in high school is family dinners. Now, I'm also well aware of the stresses and strains on families, and again, there's no perfect way to do it, and it can be very difficult to have family dinners, but as many times a week as possible, and it doesn't have to have, you know, one parent may be in a different city, and one, one, someone might be traveling, and someone might have a soccer practice. Um, but, but a focus on that, um, and you don't even have to cook the family dinner, right? Yeah. So, um, but sitting down together at the table with all phones off, including ours, right? Um, our phone is probably the most important one. There's no call that I can think of that is so important. And if you have someone who might call, change the ringtone to like whatever it might be, you know, if grandma's in the hospital or, you know, there's certainly ways around it and we model for our children. And even though they may seem like they're becoming more independent and don't need us, um, they need us a lot. Um, and the, one of the pitfalls of raising a middle school into teenager is taking them at face value with how they don't feel like their mom, you don't know anything, dad, you're dumb, or like my friends know everything, you don't understand me. 
don't pay attention to the to the lyrics, pay more attention to the music because that same kid at another point may come home crying or may want to snuggle with you at bedtime or you know, show you that they want you. So, so we are still very important to us and they're still uh, watching us uh, all the time. Can I add one thing? Please there? add anything you like. So the other thing that I would add to what Michael's saying too is that going back to what he was saying about the, the children pushing back and questioning, well, you're on your phone all the time or well, you're doing this all the time. One trick around that, or not trick, but one suggestion around that is to narrate a little bit when you're on your phone. It's hard for the kids to see what you're actually doing when you're on your phone. So if there is a moment where they're saying, well, why are you always on your phone? Just answer very honestly. I'm writing back to daddy right now. He's telling me when he's gonna catch the train and what time he's gonna show up and be home and then I'm gonna put it down. So I think it's also not just about, well, I have to work or kind of making it seem like you have something that's more significant, um, but kind of being transparent in a way that allows them to understand what it is and kind of support both the question and also support the idea that you are going to put it down and you're going to step away too. Good, excellent point. Um, and so again, the, the concept of not taking everything at face value. So, you know, their middle school will have their disappointments. They will maybe feel excluded. They may have a best friend who doesn't become a best friend. You may hear these kinds of stories. There's some children come home and download everything, right? So you may have a child who's narrating their entire experience of what's going on at school. Again, my advice here is to listen, not to jump in. They don't want to be lectured. They don't want to be quizzed. They want it to be listened to. You know, so again, a big concept in parenting is listen, 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 and don't feel like you have to jump in right away and solve their problem. Most of these things will go away on their own. Um, and so it's very hard as a parent, right? So one of the things, we don't want our kids to feel distressed. That comes in the very beginning. We have a child, the infant is born, um, and we feel like we have to take care of everything for them. And at that age, we do, because we have to feed them, we have to put them to bed, every, change their diapers. As they get older, they can start to handle more on their own. But yet, it's hard for us to give that up, like even today. <laughs> I have much older uh, adult children. You, you have to you sort of check that um, and make sure that you're letting them do some of the things for themselves. You don't have to instantly run to the school or instantly call another parent or instantly feel like you have to help them. You want to listen and then you want to help them problem solve. So the best skills you can get them is what can you do about this tomorrow? What can you, who can you talk to at school? Not I'm going to call up because I've got Chrissy on speed dial, um, <laughs> Mr. Turner on speed dial. Um, now there are times when you do want to call the teachers. You do want to call the advice. That's what they're there for. But more to get their perspective rather than um, you know, coming in and, and taking your child at face value. Because there are always two sides. If I've learned anything in psychiatry, there are always two sides to every story, if not more. So you want to be patient, you want to be mindful, which gets me to the next point um, in terms of talking about having a middle schooler, is what are you doing to take care of yourselves, right? Like, are you getting sleep? Are you getting you know, adequate nutrition? Are you getting exercise? Are you meditating or doing wellness things if that's something that you do? Um, we often put our needs under the needs of our children and we're running around like crazy and then not taking a moment for ourselves um, and then justifying and irrationalizing it. I want to encourage all of you to think about how each day I can give myself, even if it's just 10 or 15 minutes of your own time where you're just doing something that you like to do. Longer if you can, but I also understand where people's lives are. Uh, and our kids will pay attention to that. So if we say to our children, you know, we're not, not available now, this is when I do my headspace. I'm not available right now, this is when I practice my piano or when I read my book, like this is mom time or dad time. Um, and, and those limits are really a wellness move. You know, saying no to your child, 
can be a wellness move on our side. They will watch that again. They're paying attention to uh, all the things. So in terms of advice about taking care of them, because I want to give us enough time to talk. Again, how are they eating? What their nutrition is like? Are they um, exercising in what way? You know, we don't only have to have athletes, uh, but we can take a family walk, you know, uh, on the weekends. Uh, we can take a family bike ride, um, even if it's just a half an hour. Um, something that's getting them moving. We know that more exercise leads to uh, larger um, hippocampal volume, and our hippocampus is a site of memory and learning and processing. Sleep, sleep, sleep. Um, Again, our sleep and their sleep, making sure they don't have to stay up late. They need a lot of sleep in their teenagers. You know, the, uh, the recommendation is nine hours a night. Um, and so making sure that they get to sleep uh, and, uh, and they can't make up for it on the weekend. You know, our sleep experts let us know that the idea of, oh, I'll get, you know, 10 or 12 hours on a Saturday, that you never make up for the sleep uh, that's lost. Chores. Um, I find that as families have gotten busier, chores have gone by the wayside because we feel like, oh, they're so busy, or I can do it faster, or I can do it better. Um, even if it's something as simple as setting the table, they should always take their dishes off the table. You should not take your children's dishes off the table. That's another. Um, so it gives them a sense of responsibility and participation, and they may hate it. And you can say, I know you hate doing, taking the garbage out, but you got to take the garbage out. Um, look what mom and dad are doing. We're doing all these things. You know, what are you guys doing? Um, uh, Sort of, um, so sort of in terms of sort of ending um, this list of things, um, I think what's really important is always remember with your middle school child that they're still a child, even though they may look older and act older, they're still a child and they still need you. Um, and that um, even, uh, even though they scream and yell and they give you the eye roll, they still need you. You know, they may look like it and it's easy as parents to overreact to that and withdraw in fact, it's paradoxical, but they actually need you more. Maybe not at that moment <laughs> when they're yelling at you, you don't want to rush in, but they still need us there to hug them, to listen to them, uh, and to take care of them. Foot School podcasts are a production of The Foot School, an independent school for grades K through 9 in New Haven, Connecticut. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating and a review while you're there. It will help other people find our podcast. Find more information at www.footschool.org. Thank you for listening.